Well, we're delighted to have you here to celebrate our great university. Um, and as you will learn today, uh, religious commitment has been a major part of the formation and the evolution of UW-Madison. We celebrate our 150, 175th birthday uh, this year, and it's been um, a major component, a thread that's run all the way through, and you'll, learn, you'll hear about that tonight. I think we often falsely conclude that religion doesn't um, have a role in our public institutions, that we ought to seal it off in some ways, um, relegate it to the, to the margins. Um, and that would certainly include our flagship uh, universities, public universities. Although I would argue, and I think most here would agree, that um, although a public university shouldn't favor one religion over another, um, part of what it means to be human is to bring our whole selves into the learning process. And so part of what we're going to learn about tonight and see and experience is how um, the University of Wisconsin has um, enabled um, and at times uh, committed itself to spiritual and religious expression that allows for the fullness of who we are to, um, to come into the learning process. We're also going to learn a lot about um, faithful faculty, staff, administrators, and students. And I just want to stop and acknowledge um, so many that have gone before us. I think one of the things that's so wonderful about a history like this is you just begin to recognize all of the, the people who have committed from presidents to faculty to administrators to, to helping find a role for religion um, at a public university, that it can be something that brings value and adds to the texture of the conversation. And so as we pause to, to I'm going to specifically thank some individuals. I just want to pause and really thank our forebears. So many people that have gone before us um, that have made this institution what it is. And we're going to learn about some of them tonight. And I think we owe them a great uh, debt of gratitude. There are a couple entities and organizations I'd like to thank before we get started. First of all, I'd like to thank the John Templeton Foundation. They were the impetus for this initiative. They gave us a grant on our Higher Pursuits project, and they had a real vision for how um, exploring the spiritual history of UW-Madison could add real value. So I just want to thank them for, for freeing up money um, and, and, and just helping us get this thing done. I want to thank Scott Wilson. You're going to hear from Scott Wilson. He served as a consultant on the Higher Pursuits Project, and he was the producer of the documentary. Uh, and you'll learn more about him tonight. We're going to premiere that tonight. I'd like to thank a couple colleagues. Um, all The entire Upper House team has contributed, but there's a, a few colleagues that were really focused on this project, and I want to thank them. Susan Smetzer-Anderson, Cam Anderson, uh, Rebecca Cooks, Gene Collins, and Dan Johnson played pivotal roles on the project and or the grant. So thanks to all of them. And then I want to thank John Dahl, um, who's a board member, as you've been told, and you, many of you know. He's also a long-term uh, InterVarsity grad and faculty ministry staff worker. He's been here like, I don't know, 50 years or something. Um, he's, been in, he's been in every broom closet on campus. Um, so anyways, he's a long-term tenure, and um, really a lot of this comes out of his commitments. And then lastly, I want to thank Dan um, Hummel. Um, he's, uh, I called him a decorated historian <laughs> earlier today. He's a decorated um, American religion historian. Um, he serves on our upper house team um, as the um, director of university engagement. Without Dan's vision, wisdom, and tenacity, and his really good scholarship, uh, this project would not have come to fruition. Uh, Dan is a regular commentator on church, culture, and American religion. 
Um, he's the author of dozens of articles, the groundbreaking work we're going to celebrate today, as well as two books, uh, Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations, and then a forthcoming book, which I'm really excited about, uh, published by Erdman's um, with the title, The Rise of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? Um, anyways, we're super excited to welcome Dan to the stage. Dan, come on up. Tonight, I want to begin with a story. It is 86 years ago, 1937, on the campus of UW. It is March. It is cold. There's a lingering winter. Sound familiar at all to uh, today? Uh, the university is closing in on its 100th anniversary. It's grown immensely since it was founded in 1848, when there were just 19 students enrolled. In 1937, there are something like 10,000 students attending UW. Our story centers on a particular graduate teaching assistant in the English department. He's a young man, 26 years old, working on a degree at Cambridge University, but he's in Madison for a year to help pay his bills. He makes $895 as a teaching assistant that year. His name is Marshall. He's Canadian. And in his first time in the U and he's in his first time in the U.S. And he later wrote about his time in Madison. He said, when I arrived at Wisconsin, I found that there was probably more culture in the town of Madison than the whole of Canada. I had to jettison my views of the United States and do it in a hurry. Beyond the culture shock, Marshall had a profound life altering change while in Madison. But that change wasn't about his social, political or cultural views. It was religious in nature. Marshall had grown up Methodist and drifted into what he self-described as an agnostic mode. But during his graduate work, he became increasingly drawn to the Catholic Church. On Holy Thursday in March of 1937, Marshall McLuhan, yes, that Marshall, was received into the Catholic Church at St. Paul's just across the street. And I'll explain real quickly who Marshall McLuhan is if you're, if you're not uh, clued into him. Marshall would attend St. Paul's for the rest of his time in town. Later that year, he moved to a Catholic university in St. Louis and embarked on a career that would more or less define the field of media studies for a generation, winning him the nickname Prophet of the Electronic Age and giving us memorable phrases like the medium is the message and what he called the global village, describing in the 1960s what was essentially the Internet. McLuhan remained circumspect about his religion in public, even as, in private, he was a deeply devout Catholic. More than one scholar has attributed McLuhan's insights into language and media to his mystical-infused traditional Catholicism and a vision for how electronic media would usher humanity into the body of Christ. In a mysterious way that I think we can appreciate, but perhaps not on the same level as McLuhan, the University of Wisconsin, of all places, helped bring Marshall McLuhan into the Catholic Church's magisterium. So I start with the story of Marshall McLuhan to illustrate that there is much unexplored territory at the intersection of UW and religion, swaths of historical material and memory that are rich, interesting, and often odd. The conversion of one famous academic may seem slight, but it fits into a larger pattern that awaits further definition. And so I'm here today to talk about a few of the fruits of the labor we've undertaken in the past three years, researching what we've called the religious and spiritual history of the University of Wisconsin. This is built on the work of many previous historians of the university, 
and of the distinguished religious organizations in this city, some of whom have histories that are more than a century old. Suffice to say, this presentation is selective and incomplete. There are entire themes of the story that are just not present simply due to time. And I'd be delighted to discuss more in Q&A or after, uh, really just wanting to understand what's on people's minds when you come to this topic. Now, when I mention this research topic, many people often ask, but does UW have a religious history? And they say it skeptically. Um, I've now developed an answer that there are many ways to consider what is meant by UW's religious history. And each answer can add depth to our appreciation of the university's meaning and legacy. So one way is to focus on the individuals who made up UW and to interrogate their religious commitments, to ask how this dimension affected the life of the institution and how the institution shaped their religious journeys. The story of Marshall McLuhan is one example. A second way is through the lens of religious organizations and their engagement with UW. You could focus on the oldest existing institutions, such as St. Paul's, which traces its roots to a home club started in 1883. Or you could explore the now defunct YMCA that dominated student campus life for nearly 70 years. And there are many more you could highlight. The Hillel Foundation, the major center for Jewish student life, or the Muslim Student Association, which has advocated for minority rights on campus since the 1960s. A third way is to center UW itself, the institution with the most power in this whole scene, albeit power that accrued over time. McLuhan's primary purpose for being in Madison, after all, was to teach at UW. And it was through his job, in part, that his life took the trajectory that it did. Now, these aren't the only ways to talk about religious history at UW. You could look at how different religious movements have swept through UW over the decades, or how social movements with strong religious components like the civil rights movement or parts of the anti-war movement were felt on campus. We don't have time today to cover more than just a fraction of all the possible ways to tell the story. I'm confident in telling you that each of these lenses gives us a answer that yes, UW has a religious history and each one is in a different register. By interweaving a few of these stories in the next half hour, I want to establish three insights about religion at UW that will structure the rest of this talk. So instead of claiming an absolute side between secular and religious, UW has at least three important features that make it something else altogether. It is an institution shaped by non-sectarianism, a 19th century ideology that I will introduce to you. UW is a site of creative tensions between religious and public education, particularly as the university grew into a major R1 school. And UW is a school that has experienced unique and fluctuating religious influence. And that is in contrast to some of the ways that are popularly talked about when talking about UW and religion. Combine these insights will hopefully give us an orientation to some of the ways religion and spirituality has shaped UW. It's left for us today to make sense of what this history means. The reality we have today is that a plurality of students at UW now declare no religious affiliation at all. And I'll talk a little more about that later. For that reason, it is possibly more important now than ever to remind ourselves of the, the role religious culture has played in the life of UW. At the same time, the issue of religious influence in public education, including higher education, has become, like so many other issues, polarized. I don't offer a solution to that polarization here, but I do offer a starting point. The first step may be admitting that there's a complicated history we're grappling with 
one that doesn't fit neatly into simplistic depictions of religion in UW. So we begin at the beginning of UW. As most of you know, the University of Wisconsin was founded in 1848 as the state of Wisconsin's original public university. It was written into the state's constitution as the establishment of a state university at or near the seat of state government. The same article of Wisconsin's constitution also declared that no sectarian instruction shall be allowed in such a university. The phrase sectarian instruction is curious to our 21st century ears, but it was a common one in the 19th century. The definition of non-sectarian was bounded by the extremely Protestant culture that dominated Wisconsin at its founding. Non-sectarian assumed for the most part that the relevant religions would be variations of Protestants, Presbyterians, Baptists, and the like. The non-sectarian clause in the Constitution prohibited any religious test for employment or office, upheld the free exercise of religion, and forbade state support for religious organizations. But again, the term religion here often functioned around the boundaries of what was largely Protestantism. And this made sense in the context of the 1840s higher education landscape in Wisconsin, which was dominated by Protestant denominational schools. So just think of the other options that were founded in Wisconsin, in the territory of Wisconsin, and then the state leading up to the founding of UW. There's Neshota Mission, now Neshota House, which is an Episcopal seminary. There's Beloit College, which was founded by Congregationalists. There's Carroll College, which was founded by Presbyterians. And there's Lawrence College, which was founded by Methodists. UW had no interest in replicating or mimicking these institutions. In fact, direct competition with sectarian institutions was closer to UW's goal. But in 1848, the opposite of sectarian or denominational was not secular. UW's founding as a non-sectarian university was not intended to cultivate religious disinterest. And here's an example. In an early draft of the Wisconsin Constitution, the writer suggested something closer to secular, declaring that the public education in the state should contain no book of religious doctrine or belief. This was interpreted by the public as a ban on religious instruction of any kind. This language received severe pushback. In a hearing just a week later, the language was amended to the wording that was closer to the final version that you see here. The modification was intended precisely to preserve religious instruction rather than ban it. And evidence for this in UW's early history abounds. Early UW students were required to attend chapel. Most early buildings had chapels in them, including North and South Halls. Faculty hosted Bible studies. UW presidents delivered an annual sermon as part of graduation week. The curriculum of the school included required classes on religious philosophy and ethics, all taught from a non-sectarian Protestant perspective. The non-sectarian identity of the new school also came in two other forms worth mentioning. The first is in UW seal, which was intended as the first essentially branding of the university. John Lathrop, the university's first president, selected Newman Lumen as the motto. The Latin phrase means God is the light or God our light. Lathrop interpreted in even less particularistic terms as the divine within the universe, however manifested, is my light. The accompanying symbol designed by Lathrop himself gives credence to this very broad, generous interpretation. The open eye below rays of sunlight resembled the Christian symbol of the eye of providence, though with this slide, it does look a little like the eye of Sauron, uh, which was not intended. 
the symbol has roots in the Renaissance era and stands for universal values of knowledge, enlightenment, and learning. So this is one example of the non-sectarianism. Uh, if this seal suggests that UW is positioning itself as non-sectarian, its selection of its first presidents made this clear in another way. They all had strong religious identities. After John Lathrop, who was a lay Presbyterian, and his brief successor, Henry Barnard, who was a Baptist educator, the line of presidents continued to reflect a commitment to non-sectarianism that no other school in Wisconsin could duplicate. John Whelan Sterling was a Princeton Seminary graduate and Presbyterian minister. After him was Paul Chadbourne, who held a degree from the Congregationalist Hartford Theological Seminary. John Twombly, after him, was a Methodist minister, and John Bascom, who started his presidency in 1874, was a lifelong Congregationalist with a degree from Andover Theological Seminary. Even so, the upshot of this non-sectarian religious leadership meant that from the start, UW's most significant public relations challenge was assuring outsiders that it was not what its critics claimed, which was a godless or atheistic educational institution. Now, on the face, the accusation of godless makes little sense. I hope I've conveyed that to you already. Uh, yet understood within the tensions between sectarian and non-sectarian education in Wisconsin, the charge makes more sense. Beyond a few Protestant theological assumptions, UW propounded no particular dogma. More to the point, UW's approach to education uh, implied that dogma was a waste of time. John Bascom repeatedly warned against the sectarian way of education. He argued that the purpose of schools was precisely not to, in his words, build up our faith as a castle, set it up, uh, set up our doctrines as its gates, and gather in whom we can as camp followers. Instead, he wanted an institution that was both under the authority of God, as he put it, but also a place of common ground that acknowledged no thought was safe from scrutiny. Articulating how this approach to education was not, in fact, anti-religious was a major part of Bascom's job as president and of UW's early challenge in grappling with its Protestant non-sectarian identity. So we move now to a related dimension of the story that helps to define UW's identity as neither secular nor religious. As the school grew into a research university after Bascom's tenure, it underwent significant growth and growing pains. It grew in size from less than 500 students in the 1880s to 10,000 when McLuhan was on campus, from just a handful of faculty to dozens and then hundreds. And these faculty were spread among a growing number of colleges and departments. The idea of majoring in a specific field of study had to be introduced to UW. When the school started in 1848, every student took the same classes and curriculum which included a course on evidences for God and religious ethics. By the year 1900, UW expanded to five separate colleges that oversaw more than a dozen schools, institutes, and stations, all of them claiming their own certificates and majors and courses. That course on evidences for God also was dropped around this period in the late 19th century. The UW became a model of a land-grant institution, meaning it both expanded its physical footprint to include tracts of land west of campus, and it grew in its emphasis on applied research and practical sciences, including and especially agriculture. In all this change, the religious culture of the university began to change as well. A school that was almost uniformly Protestant began to accept a handful of Catholic and Jewish students. The first Jewish faculty joined in the 1880s. By the 1920s, UW's student body was 20% Catholic and 10% Jewish. As the students diversified, the tension of holding to the original Protestant non-sectarianism grew stronger. 
We see in UW's history a prime example of the beginnings of Protestant displacement from a place of unchallenged cultural authority. And that displacement continued apace. You could say it even continues apace today. One early stress point could be seen in the transition between John Bascom, who represented an older ideal, and his successor, Thomas Chamberlain, a geologist whose name now adorns the hall that houses the physics department. In the late 1880s, Chamberlain worked to thin out the thick Protestant culture of the school. The period was full of religious tension, and I can't get into the details here, but one indication from Chamberlain was his refusal as president to pray publicly or read the Bible in public. And this was in great contrast to Bascom, who did that frequently. Chamberlain also desired to eliminate re religious instruction from the curriculum, which he also did during his tenure. But Chamberlain did encourage moral instruction at UW based on beliefs, as he talked about it, under certain conditions, namely if it was outsourced to churches. And Chamberlain's views worked themselves out in the life of UW in at least two ways. One was the growth of religious organizations around the boundaries of campus. We sit in a very distant example of that here today, um, a descendant from the initial calls by late 19th century UW leaders seeking to outsource religious moral instruction. More prominent than Upper House in this history are the older organizations on campus. Across the street is St. Paul's and Press House and Calvary Lutheran Chapel. Down the street is St. Francis and Luther Memorial and The Crossing, among many others. And Hillel is a block that way. Later university leaders, like Charles Van Ice, made this call more explicit. A common argument by UW leadership at this time was that religious bodies, denominations, and those colleges should dispense with education altogether and instead commit those same resources to campus ministries at public universities like UW or to causes like missions work and alleviating social ills. Leaders like Chamberlain and Van Nuys conceived of separate spheres of responsibility for public and religious education, but they just simply assumed that these entities would work together in tandem. Such was the uncritical assumption of Protestant domination in education and religion for these generations of leaders. A second consequence of the Chamberlain era's changes was planting further seeds laid first by Bascom of what would become the Wisconsin idea, given full life by Charles Van Eyce and his famous call to make the boundaries of the university the boundaries of the state. At the time, the Wisconsin idea was an idea that bridged the religious understandings of Bascom, who saw the university's role as ushering in the kingdom of God, and he would talk about that frequently, and Chamberlain's more secular notion of the purpose of the university to the state. Van Heys was certain that the Wisconsin idea could not be entirely separated from religion. There was just too much overlap. The vision of a university extending justice and solving social problems resembled too closely late 19th century Christian understandings of the kingdom of God. Van Heys himself in a public lecture in 1913 explained that the purpose of the Wisconsin idea is the Wisconsin reply to the man who said to Jesus nearly 2000 years ago, who is my neighbor? We'll leave the unpacking of what exactly Van Eyes meant by that for another time. But here it's important to note his preference for biblical Christian metaphors to make the case for the Wisconsin idea's importance. While today the Wisconsin idea is invoked in ways that don't necessarily call to mind the ethics of Jesus, it did for many previous generations of Wisconsinites, and possibly could for many Wisconsinites today if their imaginations were stirred in that direction. But as UW continued to grow diverse in the 20th century across all types of categories, religiously, ethnically, and internationally, particularly here at the university, its Protestant influences were shed to meet a new public. 
So these previous two episodes fit into a final insight that UW's relationship to religion is one of nonlinear progression. There's no fixed direction or inevitability. Whenever we talk about UW, some version of history is implicit in what we say. It's the historian's role to make it explicit, and the process uh, hopefully will make it truer to the historical record. The implicit ways many treat UW's religious history are laid here on the slide. One way is as flat, basically saying as a public university, UW has always been secular. There's nothing to see here. Another is as a decline story. UW was religious at one point, but now not so much. A third version, heard sometimes from Protestants in particular, is essentially nostalgic. UW was more religious in the past, and it can return to that state again. These versions of history are implicit precisely because they are rarely uttered or made explicit. They come through embedded critiques of campus culture, the politics of higher education, the politics of Wisconsin. To say it again, all of these topics and views have implicit histories attached to them. You just have to know where to look. So what I want to convey here is that, in my view, none of the implicit histories I've listed here, flat, decline, nostalgic, none of them are really borne by the weight of the historical evidence. Not in any simple way, at least. Instead, the real shape is less poetic. It's nonlinear. Uh, that's my word. Uh, with periods of intense religious engagement and influence and periods of alienation and declining influence, all happening in a complex set of factors and a changing understanding of what is even meant by religion in the first place. Now, this is a perhaps frustratingly dense insight, but one that makes sense of a few different pieces of the history that I want to walk you through to show that it's very hard to stick to one of these more uh, simplistic ways of thinking of the history. So one piece of data is the changing demographics of student religious identification at UW. In this table, I collated some of the voluntary surveys of students issued over the early and mid 20th century, and then again, the campus climate surveys of 2016 and 2021. The shift is striking. In 1900, 99% of students identified as Christian, either Protestant or Catholic. In 2021, the number is 34%. What made the difference? In broad strokes, 38% of students now identify with no religious tradition, while another 17% identify as multi-faith or other. These two make up a majority of the student body today, which represents a pluralism on religion the university could not and never did foresee. More to the point, this data on its own could inform a pretty clear-cut decline narrative. Uh, the number of Protestants declines every time you take the poll, it seems pretty clear. If there's another way to spin the same number, so I'll, I'll just give it a shot. Doing some back of the envelope math, as a gross number, UW in the last 40 years has likely graduated more students than at any other period who have careers working for religious organizations or nonprofit organizations with religious commitments or businesses with stated religious values. Of course, as a share of students, the number has undoubtedly gone down over time, just given these demographic realities. But UW's extensive growth over the decades can tell a different story if you want to tell that story. And now let's move on to the second piece. Compare this demographic data with another piece of evidence, the story of UW's university hymn. Was anyone aware there was a university hymn? Um, until sometime in the 1960s, UW had an official hymn. 
Here's a version from a 1962 commencement program. Um, I'm guessing since no one knew it, no one sung it. I'm still curious about what it sounds like. I've never heard how it actually sounds. It used to accompany every official gathering, a major official gathering, every commencement, every building dedication. It's just hard to imagine today. The words are pretty anodyne. The sentiment is Protestant, but not offensively so. Yet the interesting thing to me is not that until the 1960s, UW had a hymn. This would fit into a pretty simple decline narrative of increasing secularization over time. Rather, it's that the hymn, when it was eliminated in the 1960s, was only about 40 or so years old. It was introduced in the 1920s at a time of great religious fervor and controversy across the country. The fundamentalist movement was in full swing with UW and its president at the time, someone named Edward Burge, in the spotlight of anti-evolution protests. Student religiosity increased after World War I for a variety of reasons, and especially in embracing social gospel ethics. The university itself codified a new era of sponsoring religious gatherings. It hosted a large annual Religious Awareness Week on campus, and an official University Religious Council was formed, which also lasted for about 40 years until the 1960s. These and many other factors helped to explain why the introduction of a hymn to the official life of UW made sense at the time in the 1920s, and also why it didn't before, say, in the 19th century. A third and final piece of evidence pointing to a nonlinear way to think about UW's religious development is the geographical drift of campus-based churches and ministries toward UW. This story does not fit in easily with the other two. Where the student data indicates ceaseless secularization over time, the hymn implies bouts of religiosity that spike and drop depending on outside factors. The geographical story of campus-based religious organization would, in isolation, tell a story that uh, UW has increasingly attracted more and more religious communities to campus. So this is sort of an alternate way to think of the history. So I mentioned before that university officials led by Charles Van Eyes encouraged churches in particular to move closer to campus and become more influential in the life of the university. He and others made that call in light of the reality that can be seen in this 1896 student handbook issued to every incoming freshman and published by the YMCA. On the back flap is this hand-drawn map of Madison. The letters A through I on the top left of the map signaled houses of worship in Madison, from congregational to Catholic to Unitarian to Jewish. But if you just take a note of their general location, most are nearly half a mile away from campus, much closer to the square than to UW. So this is the state all the way back in 1896. Let's fast forward to 1970. And the landscape has changed dramatically in at least two ways. So this is a map from the University Religious Workers, an organization that came into existence after 1896. And this is a map given in a student handbook of right around campus. The proximity of these churches and places of worship has diminished greatly, with more than a dozen closer than any were in 1896. Likewise, there is far more diversity in this list of places. There are the historic Protestant churches. They remain present, but not dominant. The Hillel Foundation, founded in 1924, becomes the center of Jewish life on campus. Groups without buildings include the Muslim Student Association and the Baha'i Club. Even within the Protestant fold, the listing of evangelical ministries without buildings on the bottom right, not on the map, including Badger Christian Fellowship, which was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and Campus Crusade for Christ, these presage a new era in the 1970s and 1980s when they would come to outpace in size the historic 
Protestant churches on campus. Overall, the story of religious organizations in UW has been of increasing presence on campus, more diversity, more activity over time, even as, even as they have moved out of the center of UW's institutional life. This is taken from the UW website today. There are now more than 60 spiritual or religious registered student organizations. And they illustrate how there has been an explosion of organizations and club representing dozens of traditions not present earlier in UW's history. Most actually meet on campus or very nearby, while others meet in spaces like Upper House or other churches and elsewhere in close proximity. The story of the close proximity, both literally and figuratively, of the UW to religious organizations also continues to animate the UW leadership in the 21st century. So here is the late Rebecca Blank in 2016, explaining the importance of churches to providing moral frameworks in today's discussions alongside those used at the university. She said here in an interview, interview to Duke University, the church's role in talking about other frameworks, moral frameworks, which can, people can bring to their behavior in market society is deeply important, partly because there are almost no other voices in that arena. You can see here echoes of the 19th century idea of partnership between religious and public education for the purposes of broadening the conversation. So have I convinced you that there is a nonlinear path to UW's religious history? Possibly not, but hopefully you get a sense that how we tell the story of religion at UW really does matter. So what is the implicit assumption you carry around about this history? And what are other stories we can tell? Here then I return to my three proposed insights. UW was founded as non-sectarian. Religion has been a constant source of creative tension in the heart of UW's defining eras. And religious influence has fluctuated in a nonlinear pattern in the 175 year life of the university. As we wrap up, here's a picture of a young Helen C. White, the towering professor of literature and poetry for whom the undergraduate library is now named. In many ways, Helen White and Marshall McLuhan shared little beyond a Catholic faith and an interest in English literature when they first met in 1936 here in Madison. He was a 26-year-old Canadian man, and she was a 40-year-old woman from New Haven, Connecticut. He was on his way through Madison while pursuing a PhD at Oxford, she got her PhD at UW. He was a one-year graduate teaching assistant. She was on UW's faculty for 48 years. He was just a couple years away from meeting his wife and returning to Canada. She was a lifelong bachelorette with the nickname, the Purple Goddess. And that's because she wore purple every day of her life. Um, yet for all their differences, McLuhan and White shared by the end of his year in Madison, devotion to the Roman Catholic Church. Albeit this was one that McLuhan came to very recently and one that she had nurtured since birth. McLuhan passed through the UW English department at a unique time when White was a rising star at UW. She was the unofficial leader of a vibrant Catholic network of faculty on campus that would count more than 100 strong a decade later. McLuhan worked with White during his year at UW and she became a letter writer for him in the following years. His correspondence while in Madison is sparse, so we don't know for certain if White had a decisive hand in McLuhan's conversion to Catholicism. But it is likely. White was a close ally of Father Cuchera, the priest who received McLuhan into the Catholic Church over at St. Paul's. 
She was also deeply committed to the mentorship of young Catholics on campus. And there's also the intriguing clue that among McLuhan's reading list for 1936 to 37, he kept a uh, close diary of what he read, are a number of books in White's Bailiwick, Victorian era Christian mystics. One can only guess who recommended them to McLuhan during his year in Madison. Whatever the case, in McLuhan and White, we have examples of the brief and the lasting in the drama of religion at UW. McLuhan's religion took a new trajectory after his time at UW, while White's sustained presence on campus helped shape UW itself. Both owed their biographies in small and large ways to the university, to the institution that gave them reasons to be in Madison and structured the pursuit of knowledge and meaning in both their lives. So I'll end with this quote by Helen White in one of her most famous books, A Study of the Mystic, William Blake. In this work, White describes art and religion as two of the most human activities, the activity of humanity trying to extend itself, transcend itself. The inclusive and means that this noble pursuit is not exclusive to religious people, but that religion in various manifestations supports the enduring and perennial human quest to transcend itself. In UW's history, this impulse may be found in those who study, teach, and lead the university, in those religious organizations that serve the community, and in the university itself. It might be entailed, you could argue, in the school's own mission statement, which claims knowledge, wisdom, and values as what the university seeks to discover, examine critically, preserve, and transmit. For those inspired by that noble vision of the University of Wisconsin, being a place where humanity is trying to transcend itself, we can take heart. We stand on the shoulders of many who came before us. So there is a long history to tap into here and one that still has much to explore and reveal. Thank you. <laughs>